0: Welcome to Plural Space, Conversations in Lung Cancer. In this new limited series entitled The Power of Partnerships, we connect medical professionals and patients across the care continuum for real conversations about lung cancer. Each episode will focus on one facet of this complicated field and feature the people striving to make it better.
1: Hello and welcome to today's podcast. My name is Elridge Proctor. I'm the senior director of government affairs at GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer, where we're working to change the reality of living with lung cancer in order to improve survivorship. I came to GoTo Foundation with my own patient experiences, which have led me to take on lung cancer as a personal issue. So I have educational degrees in political science and public administration. I have previous work experiences on Capitol Hill and nonprofit organizations, but what I enjoy about my current role is serving as an ardent advocate for the lung cancer community. During today's podcast, we will discuss why advocacy matters to lung cancer survivors and for our community. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Michelle Stigger, Heidi, and Pierre Onda to talk about patient advocacy. Heidi and Pierre, why don't you start us off by introducing yourself? Then tell us how you started your patient advocacy journey. Heidi, do you want
2: to speak first? Sure. Thank you for having me today. My name is Heidi Onda, and I am a fitness trainer and a health educator for more than 20 years and a lifelong health enthusiast. And I became a lung cancer survivor advocate three years ago in October of 2018, blindsided by a diagnosis.
1: That is great. Pierre, I didn't want to cut you off, but wanted to invite you to
3: join in. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. So I'm a recently retired primary care physician, but at the time of Heidi's diagnosis, I was still working. And as Heidi became more involved in advocacy, I certainly wanted to Join in this effort and find a way that I could contribute since I didn't personally have lung cancer, but I think there are ways for people without lung cancer to become effective advocates as well.
1: That's very true. Well, let's also now hear and invite Michelle Steger to join the conversation. Michelle, you have a very unique perspective on lung cancer as it relates to advocacy and equity for women and other minorities. So why don't you start first by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your professional work.
4: Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Stigger. I am a middle school teacher. I teach language and literature to sixth graders and eighth graders, and my work has started Long, long ago, I believe, since I was a little girl, my dad had hemophilia in the 80s. And if you know anything about that story, it's connected to the HIV AIDS crisis. And so I've been an advocate all my life. And then one day I woke up in 2017 and I became my own personal advocate. I was diagnosed with lung cancer as well. And so with that advocacy work that I had learned in my dad's community in the hemophilia world and in the HIV AIDS world that's got me pushed forward and here I am.
1: Well, thank you for that and I just want to share with you that I first became engaged in the HIV AIDS issues also through hemophilia when I worked on Capitol Hill for a member of Congress. And I met with so many patients that were advocating for changes. And through them, we learned so much about AIDS. And so I can resonate with you and your story. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about your perspectives on advocacy. I think your perspective is very unique and you bring such a powerful voice as a survivor, each of you. And so here's a question that a lot of advocates want to know. How did you develop the confidence to trust that your voice will be heard and valued? And I welcome Heidi and Pierre to chime in as well, but we'll start with you, Michelle.
4: Getting the diagnosis of cancer was deafening. And I wore that sort of silence and that freeze for a couple of months. And my husband encouraged me to go to a group. And I went to a group called the Gilda Club here in Chicago. It is for all people, but it is a sliding scale. So those that are on the lower end, if you will, and I'm throwing my fingers up with the air quotes, can also come. And I met this woman, and her name was Tasha. And she came right on over to me, and she had a wrap over her head. And she said, what's your name? And I told her who I was, and she just knew I was scared. I was, like, terrified. I was shaking almost. We're all in this little session getting breakfast or whatever, before we sat down and introduced ourselves. And when you have cancer, you don't want it. So this isn't a group or space that you want to be in. And so she came over to kind of warm me up. And her first thing was, I've had cancer and this is my third time. And I'll have to tell you that no one believed me. And I've been turned away from chemo appointments because of my past history of being a recovering drug addict and, you know, some other things that had happened in her life. It was a struggle for her, but she looked at me and said, but for you, you're going to be okay. And she just snapped me back into life. And then from that moment on, I knew that like, yes, I had cancer and I was going to have surgeries and, you know, who knew what the outcome was going to be, but I was always going to speak for her in every space that I was in. She's an African-American woman and people did not see her. Her family didn't see her. The doctors didn't see her. They judged her. They took their biases out on her based on her previous actions she had lost her children again she was a recovering drug addict so her life wasn't valuable and so that really caused me to fight and then i found longevity and longevity when i walked into that room was a room full of women strong powerful women and they just literally like opened their arms and gathered me in and ever since then i've been like the hamilton song that says why do you write like you're running out of time. And so when you have lung cancer, then I've had many, many friends who are in stage four and five leave this year, that there's not enough time. And you know, you hit the ground running and you keep going. That's sort of how I've been this patient advocate.
1: Wow, extraordinary. And you know, I like how you described what it meant to you when you found longevity as a resource. I think each of the nonprofit organizations strive to be that home that comfort, that support level for individuals who are newly diagnosed and currently battling lung cancer. And it's a place where everyone can go to. So we encourage people to continue to connect with individuals and to find a home or place for their support. So I thank you for sharing that. Heidi, I'd love to hear more about what made you feel so empowered as an advocate. Can you share a little bit more about your perspective?
2: Sure. My initial experience is very different than Nichelle's. I was not given any resources for support whatsoever. And My head was spinning, of course, with the initial diagnosis. So I was just trying to process that in the first couple of months. But then I really was looking for the community, like where are the support networks and so forth and approaching my doctor, who was very nice and the nurse navigators were very nice. They basically just said, we don't have anything for you. There's just nothing. And I didn't even think to look nationally at that point because this was all pre-pandemic. This was back in 2018. And I was looking for what was in my own backyard which just didn't exist. And I felt very much alone. And then about 10 months into the diagnosis, by chance through a friend of a friend, I was introduced to a young woman here in Colorado who was diagnosed at stage four while pregnant with her second baby. And after meeting her, she introduced me to the world of advocacy. So she introduced me to the Go To Foundation and Longevity and some other local advocates here in Colorado who again, were much younger than I was in all states four. And it was finally finding those connections and listening to these women and their stories that made me feel like, well number one, I finally found my people. But number two, it felt irresponsible giving my background in prevention and also my husband as a primary care doc to stay quiet. And it was at that point that it was like, you know what? I need to come out. Coming out meant telling more than my circle of friends and family, more so on social media that, hey, I have this. And if it could happen to me, it could happen to you. And let's put on the health educator hat now, which I had kind of pushed aside. Again, dealing with my own processing of the diagnosis and being in treatment and everything that I could help educate People with my professional voice and also my voice as somebody surviving this disease and then going through it.
1: That's extraordinary as well. Pierre, I wanted to just ask you how you have approached advocacy and what kinds of activities you're engaging in with Heidi.
3: Yeah, sure. I think initially, when she was first diagnosed, it was overwhelming for the both of us. And as it became clear that Heidi was leaning more and more into advocacy, there's a choice to be made. And one is to sort of sit back and say, well, okay, that's great. I'm glad that this is something you're interested in doing. Or the other choice is to also lean into it. And we've always been a team in many aspects of our marriage. And so I felt, well, okay, let's see what I can do. But not having lung cancer initially kind of struggled. What's my role here other than just being supportive? The other thing is we're very different people. And so I had to search, well, what's my skill set? What can I bring to the table? So I certainly have some experience as a physician, a different set of contacts. I also have different skills. And so it was a matter of how can I apply my skill set to advocacy. I'm not a social media person, but clearly, social media is a very important part of advocacy. So, part of it is well, buckle up, try to learn more, and leverage it. And the other is to, again, apply what I know about management, organization, how primary care physicians think. You know, in lung cancer, for example, primary care physicians have a very important role in lung cancer screening. And as you all know, or many of you know, the current rates of lung cancer screening for eligible is quite low. And if you also talk about disparities in care, there's a great deal of variability of care and outcomes for lung cancer patients. So what can I do to sort of promote more equity, less variability, better care, particularly in the realm of the care provided by primary care physicians.
2: If I can just jump in for a second, I just want people to know that we are very similar in some ways, though. We're very private people and introverts. And I know that's probably hard for people to believe at this point because we are the face of the White Ribbon Project now. But the more comfortable I got telling my story and the more I realized that it felt more responsible to do that, I realized that being quiet was no longer serving me or my community well and that when this started to take off and it all took off after just, you know, this sense of frustration that cancer centers across the country had not had any plans for Lung Cancer Awareness Month, that we took our own initiative. I asked Pierre to make me the one white ribbon, which was just for me. And then that two foot by one foot symbol became my voice, and that's where I found it. So I've evolved over being super private and quiet to now being out there and helping to galvanize a community who now wants to tell their stories. So it feels like a turning point in lung cancer advocacy for at least me for as long as I've been involved in this for the past three years, and that people do want to stand up, own their stories, and change the narrative of lung cancer, each story at a time, which is so critical. And you mentioned the HIV AIDS community. I worked with the HIV AIDS community back in the early 90s in Los Angeles. And that's exactly what happened there. They humanized the story. And now it's a highly funded infectious disease.
1: You know, that is such an inspiring project. Whenever we hear about the White Ribbon Project, it is gaining so much momentum and spreading awareness nationally. And of course, we can't thank you enough for leading it and bringing it to other lung cancer survivors to give them that voice to help them find their power. I would just love for you to just talk a little bit and I invite everyone to kind of think and share their perspectives on what will it take to help other lung cancer patients feel just as empowered as you each are? Like, what is it that we need to give to them? A sense of community, right? Everyone's looking to find that hope, but also that awareness. Pierre touched on such a critical issue, lung cancer screening, which is lacking, right? How do we raise awareness of not only the disease, but the lung cancer patients? as Nichelle shared, about the visibility being seen as a lung cancer patient and what your needs are. So I just invite the group to just have a
2: discussion just around that. We took a 7,000 mile road trip this summer around the country, teaching communities and cancer centers how to make these ribbons. And you know, with the pandemic, it's difficult because you can't just gather as many people as you want. But Nichelle had stepped up to host a build in the suburbs of Chicago, and we came out to meet her and she invited the number of people that she was comfortable having to keep things safe. But Nichelle, go ahead and talk about how did it feel for you to have us come and meet other members of the community for you? Yeah.
4: It's amazing, especially with the pandemic. You're used to seeing everybody, you know, on social media, on Facebook. And I had followed Heidi for a while and actually seeing her walk through my yard and seeing Pierre. Yeah, I got to see you both. (laughs) And they both walked in my yard. And I was like, oh my God, you're here. You automatically embrace each other. And it's an unsaid, unheard, unthought about love that instantly just happens, like, this person is now part of my family. And that's how you hug. And that's how you embrace. And then that's how you communicate. And then that's how you talk. And then we had all of these people, all of these helpers come in. We had Chris Draft and, you know, everyone is taking their part. Chris Draft brought his uncle and his uncle was a part of this family. And my husband and my son came out and we all had our stations. And Pierre was at the woodmaking station and he can take all the plywood and he was like spinning through it so fast. I'm describing these things sort of in a quick frame because all of these images are in my head, but I took a step back and I just looked at everyone and am still so thankful for each part of that. And if you're able to be a part of that moment or be connected, just on a human level, it's huge. And now you're connecting with lung cancer, which everyone doesn't have. And so you feel less alone. So Heidi said, how did I feel? I felt less alone. Even though I was in stage 1B, you have these anxieties still after that people don't understand. You don't see that I'm missing my lung or that when I walk up a flight of stairs, it's hard for me to breathe. The older I get, I'm turning 40 this year. I have asthma now and I have an inhaler that I use three times a day. And those are the things that people can't see. But the people in the community know So if I'm hacking up a lung, you know, they go, oh, yeah, I have that cough, too. (laughs) And then you're like, really? And so it's that sense of community. It's that sense of being seen and heard, but also embraced. And then everyone in this community puts you up in their hands and they lift you up. So if you want to advocate and you're ready, then we will all lift you up so that you can do that. And so you asked that question of how do we make sure that people are advocating or how do we encourage them, empower them, is they have to hit that aha moment for themselves and then we're ready waiting for them.
2: And also... It's meeting people where they are. So some are newly diagnosed and their heads are spinning. And then they're like, wow, there's community. It's right here. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And one of the powerful things about these builds is when we're done with the ribbon, we flip it over and people are signing it. And some are signing their names. Some are signing inspirational messages, letting people know they're not alone, letting them know they're supported and that they are loved. We sign every ribbon with love, Heidi and Pierre. And- To not feel like I felt, again, I had this wonderful healthcare team, but I kind of felt like I had been tossed into this ocean of just despair and floating out there by myself. And like, we're sorry you have lung cancer, but too bad for you. And that's not okay. And I don't want anyone to ever feel that way again. And touching base with people, I mean, we had sent hundreds of ribbons across the country. And then actually meeting the people this summer was just so powerful. And to have their caregivers there too, and to meet other caregivers and other survivors, I think it just gave people a lot of hope that, you know what, we can do this together as a team, we feel empowered. We have a spectrum of advocacy where some people really want the ribbon. And right now for them, putting it on their door is huge because it's screaming that someone in this residence has lung cancer. And then we have other people who want to take these and get them to their political leaders and get them to their cancer centers and cancer center directors. And so whatever someone's comfort level is, we try to support them. They ask for help sometimes like, how did you get this in the cancer center? And we can help them with what strategies worked for us. And when people are given an opportunity to advocate on their level and know that it's valued, whether it's high level going to Capitol Hill or becoming a very detailed science-oriented advocate or putting one on your front door, it all is powerful. It all is powerful.
1: You know, there's so much that you all have said that we could unpack here in the interest of time, we're just going to try to tease a little bit of it at a time and hopefully continue the conversation to the future. We can continue to evolve this. But a couple of things I wanted to just highlight. The way that Michelle described what was happening locally is exactly the sense of pride and community and strength that actually is gained from attending This is where people come and you find your voice and you learn the issues and you get a representation and visibility and that community that is so sought after. And so I do want to highlight that. And then the second thing, too, as Pierre talked about his skill sets, how so many people approach lung cancer advocacy from different perspectives, whether you're a medical professional, what you say to your patients matter, how you go about providing care and advocacy. Advocating for your patients in addition to what we do effectively as caregivers and community supporters. I think there's a role for each person to play. But one thing that I want to articulate is that you do not need a specific skill set to become an advocate. And this was your point, Heidi, the diagnosis of lung cancer alone, once you're diagnosed, you are inducted as an advocate because you then have to advocate not only for yourself, but you also become a voice for the entire community and all of those who no longer have a voice too. So the responsibility does increase. I think this is a really good time for us to not only point to the successes, and certainly I would refer to the Voices Summit that GoTo holds, the HOPE Summit that Longevity holds, as well as others that I may not be able to mention, the National Lung Cancer Roundtable Annual Meeting, in addition to the White Ribbon Project that's raising awareness. All of these are successes, success stories to advocacy. But I want to talk and address some of the challenges that we know exist in advocacy. For one example, over the years I've learned from training patients on how to use their stories to advocate for support, that some people just feel that advocacy can be intimidating. Some may feel that advocacy is just outside of their normal activities, or it's just not something that they intend to do, not knowing that each time you tell your story, you're actually advocating. So knowing that the work in advocacy can be challenging and the results can take a long time to yield the outcomes that we all want to see, we all share the same goals and the same mission, which is that we want to see effective policy changes to increase research funding, accelerated access to new and improved treatments, early detection tools, and ultimately we'd like to see lung cancer be managed like a chronic disease and not the death sentence that it is. And so in looking at these challenges, I invite this group to just talk about, you know, what are some of those other challenges that we need to dispel the myths about? And how do we encourage and continue to give tips to not only take away the fear of getting involved in advocacy, but letting you see how naturally your story is advocating?
4: Well, certainly we have a bias already. Lung cancer has always been associated with smoking. And I think as a community, we can do better because you have smoked does not mean that you don't deserve a community, does not mean that you don't have a voice, does not mean that your trials through this journey, your sickness, your healing through this journey is not meaningful. In fact, it is very meaningful. And I think never smokers and smokers, we need to now band together and move forward with this message. There should not be a bias or some sort of cloud hanging over us that says, I can't tell you my story because I did this to myself. We have to change the narrative. And when we change the narrative as the lung cancer community, then we help other narratives in other sectors of health so that we can all just be treated as humans. And that's where that equity comes in. There's so many intersectionalities that we play as patient advocates.
2: I'd like to address that as well. When I first started to talk about my story, people were saying, you know, people don't care about lung cancer, Heidi. You know, this is people who have done this to themselves and blah, blah, blah. And being a health educator, I work with people who, one could say, have done this to themselves with poor eating habits, getting type 2 diabetes and not exercising and so forth. And we just need to stop the blame game here. And it doesn't matter whether somebody has a history of smoking or not. No one deserves this hideous disease. And the more we talk about it and make it human the less that comes into play, exactly as that happened in the HIV AIDS community. Everybody realized when the stories were getting told that this could happen to anybody. You raise the climate of concern and then people were interested in hearing more about this. So when people hear my story, they're like, wow, tell me more. They're not like, oh, I don't want to hear this. So we can empower ourselves that we do have the power to change the narrative, which we are doing. And a classic example comes to mind for me, the Go-To Foundation trained me to be a phone buddy and assigned me my first patient back in fall of 2019. So I was just about a year out in my journey. And my buddy had a very heavy smoking history. I didn't have a smoking history. And we both ended up in the same place, the same exact diagnosis, stage 3A, with the same treatment plan. And when she met me, she was like, oh my gosh, I feel like this weight of blame in myself has just been lifted because this can happen to anyone with lungs anyone with lungs with a smoking history, anyone with lungs without a smoking history. It really doesn't matter. And with this white ribbon, it includes all of us, whatever stage you are, whatever history, whether you're a caregiver, a medical provider, we all need your voice and we all need your support.
1: It is a current challenge that we are trying to address at the GoTo Foundation. You know, there's a bill known as HR 1800, and the Senate bill number is S699, and it's known as the Women in Lung Cancer Research and Preventive Services Act. Annually, we convene lung cancer patients as advocates to ask members of Congress to co-sponsor and pass this bill. This bill has been out for several years, and the aim and effort behind it is to increase research to try to understand and answer that very scientific question. Why is there a higher incidence among non smokers and younger women in regards to lung cancer. So, the bill would call for a study in that specific area, targeting more research there, but also increasing access to preventive services. In addition to that, raising a national public health education and awareness campaign around the issues of lung cancer. And so, these are challenges, but within these challenges, as I said, there's opportunities for us. To advocate for this community and for individuals who are battling this disease. I would invite each of you to provide some specific examples within this current month or that's upcoming in ways that people can get involved and take on advocacy or take a specific action within the activities. And I'd like to invite Pierre to start us off on that.
3: Well, my call to anyone in the medical profession, if you have any influence over improving screening rates for lung cancer, take that step. An easy step, if you have lung cancer or you know someone with lung cancer, consider just putting a white ribbon sticker on your car. Very simple.
2: The ribbons are eliciting conversations. And I hear a lot in the lung cancer community We hate that first question that people pose to us. Like, I didn't know you had a smoking history or, you know, when they hear about the diagnosis and that the public should never ask that question. And what I feel is as a health educator and a primary care doctor, we didn't know that I could be at risk for lung cancer. And if we didn't know, why would the general public know? So you have to address that question. And that's how you take that next step into education and awareness. I expect that question. I want that question because I want to help dispel the myths. So talking about the facts is empowering. And that's how the narrative starts to change.
1: I agree. Facts coupled with personal stories is how to get the job done. Michelle, let's turn to you.
4: What's your thoughts? It's Lung Cancer Awareness Month. It's November. And so now more than ever, you can go out and you can see the facts that are posted. If you just take the time to type in lung cancer, you know, we all have lungs, right? So you want to keep healthy, you know, just like sunscreen. Everybody wants to wear sunscreen and protect themselves. You know, you can go on and find the data and figure out how you can protect yourself. And it's the same with our lungs as the environment is changing. And as we're going through environmental crisis, it's important for us to think about that. So I highlight that for those that are new to the community, and then also for those that are in the community, those that have left us. It's a perfect time to remember the other people that advocated before us. So I walk on the heels of my friends that I've lost. And so that's what keeps me going in this journey. Well, I'm so
1: glad you mentioned Lung Cancer Awareness Month. I have a couple of suggestions, too, that I'd like to add to your suggestions. So this month, we will be urging everyone to contact their members of Congress through the GoToFoundations online platform. On the website, we make it very easy. With just a click of your mouse, individuals can send written messages to Congress. And you're right, Michelle, it is the perfect time to share your story and ask representatives to pass bills on lung cancer. There will be a federal resolution designating November as the National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And with the voices, we will have that resolution passed in both the House and the Senate. Also, I want to encourage individuals, whether you're newly diagnosed or you've been a long time in this journey, to consider joining other survivors, caregivers, and family members, and medical professionals or allied professionals at events that will be planned across the country to raise awareness on lung cancer. I can share with you at the GoTo Foundation, early next year, individuals can register to participate in the annual Voices Summit which will be held virtually on May 16th and 17th in 2022. This will be actually the greatest opportunity to advocate for more research funding in direct meetings with your members of Congress. And I'd like to invite any of you to share upcoming events or dates that you want us to save the dates for.
2: I don't have any particular dates right now, but we're always open to teaching people how to build ribbons. And we do that over Zoom calls, or sometimes we do travel. But one of the things I did the other day was I just wrote to my mayor and asked him if he would sign a proclamation that this is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. I had a response in less than 24 hours after giving him a little background on my story. And now he wants a ribbon and will formally take a picture and do this. And it was very easy to do. And there are templates out there, or maybe GoTo could provide them to people during Lung Cancer Awareness Month to give this simple ask to their city mayors who you are their constituents. They should know that there is not only lung cancer, in their area, but there's most likely a lot of lung cancer in their area. This was very simple and very empowering. I was surprised at how quickly my mayor jumped up to want to be part of this.
1: Absolutely correct. GOTI Foundation can provide sample proclamation so that your local elected officials can issue or designate November as Lung Cancer Awareness Month. This can be done locally as well as federally. So thank you for mentioning that, Heidi. So I think that as we're concluding today's podcast, I think we all agree the message is to encourage everyone to observe each day as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month in order to promote and support the ideals that will save and improve survivorship. And so with that note, I just want to thank our listeners, and I want to thank you individually, Nichelle, Heidi, and Pear, for sharing your powerful perspectives and your inspiration with us. And thank you for your voice and advocacy and
4: your partnership. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure.
0: Plural Space is a joint production by the American College of Radiology and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. Episodes were produced by Hannah Burson with series production assistance by Tiffany Gowan, Lauren Rosenthal, and Kenley Byrne. Editing of this series is by Port City Films. A webinar on this episode's topic, as well as additional information, can be found at the link in the episode description.